Good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to come on in and to find a seat. We're going to begin Lesson 8 of our study on the marks of a healthy church. So many numbers in the titles here. Lesson 8, Mark number 5, Biblical Church Discipline, Part 1. And uh, so that's just the way it is. Lots of numbers to keep straight. Um, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day, and we thank you for the joy that it is to gather together in Christ's name. Help us in this Sunday school hour to have focused minds. Help us to understand what your word teaches. Give us the strength to live in obedience to you. I pray that you would bless us uh, during this hour, and also that you would bless your people as they come to morning worship. May you be highly exalted today, and may your people be built up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the introduction to this chapter, which presents the fifth mark of a healthy church, Dever asks the question, are we to live as Christians on our own, or do we have some obligation to each other? We've already answered that question in previous chapters. The Christian life is a a life that is to be lived in community with others in the context of the local church? Do our obligations to each other involve merely encouraging each other positively, or do they include a responsibility to speak honestly to each other's faults, shortcomings, departures from Scripture, or specific sins? Could our responsibilities before God also include sometimes making such matters public? So he asks all these questions, and I'm sure you know where Dever is going in this chapter. He is going to say that, yes, we have an obligation to encourage one another. We have an obligation to even confront one another privately or personally when necessary. That's to be done in a certain way, of course, with a certain attitude. But also, there are indications in the Scripture, clear statements in Scripture, that say that sometimes these matters need to be dealt with publicly, and by publicly we mean in the context of the the congregation or the members of the church, not publicly in the sense of broadcast to the world, uh, maybe only on very rare occasions would that be done, uh, but publicly amongst the members of a congregation. He then asked the question, is all discipline negative? Sorry for the typo there, I just noticed it. Is all discipline negative? Negative. He, he is going to make a case for formal and public church discipline. Is it all negative? Without hesitation, we should all admit our need for discipline, that is to say, for shaping. Uh, discipleship involves an element of discipline or, or shaping. Uh, we see this in the home. Children are disciplined lovingly by their parents so that they might be shaped into uh, godly uh, men and women We all need this. We need it when we're young. We also need it when we're old. Never are we without this need to be disciplined by the Lord and even impacted by others as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That kind of principle is found throughout scriptures. Once we have come to that admission, however, we should notice that discipline is often positive, or as it is traditionally called, formative. So when you hear the phrase, church discipline, 
I, I, if, if I were a betting man, I would say that you do think of something negative, something unpleasant, you know, something that we really would rather not deal with. But it should not be that way. There is, first and foremost, a positive or formative kind of church discipline that should be taking place all the time within a congregation as we encourage one another, as we build one another up, and from time to time as we confront one another concerning um, sin or foolishness or whatever it may be. Uh, it's, it's for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, and it should happen quite naturally uh, and constantly within uh, the life of a local church. Formative discipline refers to those things that shape people as they grow emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. It's the basic shaping that takes place in our families as well as in our churches. Every truth you have ever heard some, uh, someone talk about is a part of formative discipline. I guess there's a sense even that the church is being disciplined through the regular and public ministry of the Word of God. You know, as the Word of God is preached, there's a kind of discipline or shaping that is taking place uh, through, through the preaching of, of the Word. So there is formative church discipline, and near the end of our, uh, at the end of our time today, we will look at our um, Constitution, Article 5, on church discipline, and I'll just note it now that Section 3 is about formative church discipline. So there we use that traditional title, and there it is described even in the Constitution of Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church. What is church discipline? Uh, he begins by raising and then answering a potential objection. Church discipline, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? Uh, I'm sure that some have, have stated their opposition to formal church discipline by citing that verse. You know, what is it that you're doing here uh, in uh, judging one another? Didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? Uh, and then Dever points out that whatever Jesus means by that statement, and it is a very important statement, a very important principle, of course, whatever he means by that statement in Matthew 7 must agree with what he says about discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So it's in the same gospel. The gospel of Matthew in 7, 1, Jesus says, Judge not lest you be judged. But in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, he describes the process of church discipline, which does definitely involve a form of, of judgment. Uh, if someone is sinning, go to them. If they've sinned against you, go to them. Take two or three others with you if they don't listen to you. If still you're not able to, to convince your brother to repent of whatever the sin was, tell it to the church. And if he won't listen to the church, let him be to you as a, a tax collector uh, or, or Gentile. In other words, put them out of the church. There's a form of judgment that is to take place within the congregation. And of course, uh, Paul, uh, the apostle, speaks directly to this. He, he says, what do we have to do with judging the outsider? You know, That's not our business within the church, to judge the outsider. But we are to judge those who are a part of the body of Christ. And he then exhorts the congregation to purge the e evil person from our midst. So these are not contradictions. These are not contradictions. There is a sense in which we are to judge not, lest we be judged. We're not to judge with ultimate judgment, the kind of judgment that only God judges with. Um, we're, we're not to judge harshly, uh, unfairly, unjustly, etc. There's lots of truth contained within that verse. Uh, but clearly, Jesus does not mean that we are not to do the very thing He tells us to do, only a few chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 18 
verses 15 through 17. We should remember that God Himself is judge. So judgment is a good thing. God Himself is judge. And in a lesser sense, God intends others to judge as well. Think of civil magistrates who have the responsibility to judge in common civil matters. Romans 13, 1-7 speaks of that. We are to judge ourselves, 1 Corinthians 11, 28, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Hebrews 4, 2 Peter 1, 5-10. We are to examine ourselves and judge ourselves. And the church is to exercise judgment within itself. Matthew 18 has been referenced already, and I have cited it in a, you know, by way of paraphrase. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 also speaks to it, and many other texts also, which we will briefly consider in just a moment. So the church is to exercise judgment within itself. It is not surprising, Dever says, that the church is instructed to judge. After all, if we cannot say how a church or how a Christian should not live, how can we say how a Christian should live? Um, Or to say how a Christian should live, and often preaching does that. Do this, do that according to the scriptures. But of course, the Scriptures also tell us how we are not to live, and we are to be concerned to also say that to one another. Uh, We ought not to do this or that thing. And so when we fail to do what the Scriptures command, or when we do what the Scriptures forbid, uh, we should exhort one another in these things, and it may even result in what we call formal or public church discipline. Concerning church growth, one publication said that we should quote, open the front doors and close the back doors of the church. Uh, So Dever addresses this idea that he has heard uh, that was promoted within some church growth uh, manual. Open the front doors of the church wide and close the back doors of the church. And I've heard this kind of thing before. We need to do a better job at enticing people to come in and when they come in, welcoming them and then receiving them effectively in such a way so that they don't just disappear within two or three weeks. And Dever says these are valid criticisms, so he does mention some criticisms that have been leveled against the church for doing a poor job at welcoming new people. He says these are valid criticisms, and I would agree with that. We should think about how to receive new people into our midst in a way that's loving and and warm and, and effective. These are valid criticisms, but what Dever goes on to say is that we actually need to, what we actually need to do is to close the front door and open the back door, exclamation mark. What we really need to do is close the front door and open the back door. If we want to see our churches grow, we need to make it harder to join, and we need to be better at excluding people. I'm going to speak to that in just a moment, that... that that language, okay? So bear with me as I finish the quote. We need to be able to show that there is a distinction between the church and the world, that it, that it means something to be a Christian. If someone who claims to be a Christian refuses to live as a Christian should live, we need to follow what Paul said, and for the glory of God and for that person's own good, we need to exclude him or her from the membership in the church. I agree with Dever's words. I agree with his assessment here. 
I even agree with what he says that we need to do a better job or what we need to do is to close the front door and to open the back door. I think what he says here, if taken in context, is correct. But I do take these words, we need to make it harder to join and we need to be better at excluding people to be somewhat hyperbolic. It's kind of exaggerated language that is being used here in order to drive a point home. Uh, What Dever is saying in context is, is that really we have a bigger problem with having the front doors of the church wide open and the back doors of the church firmly shut so that what we end up doing is receiving the world into our congregations and then never dealing with blatant sin. And that is a bigger problem than not receiving new people effectively. That is a bigger problem in the modern church. And I think he is completely right. And what happens is that these churches that have the front door of the church wide open so that people may come in freely as they are without any pastoral involvement. And in these churches where no church discipline is ever done uh, in a formal or public way, uh, the church ends up uh, suffering from a kind of spiritual cancer. Uh, growth might be very rapid, but in the long run, this church will quickly um, be plagued by sin and false teaching and division, and it will suffer probably a fairly long and painful death. Uh, it, it, that is what will happen. Uh, and so, I agree with Dever's words. I hear him being somewhat hyperbolic. Can you imagine this quote being pulled from this book and put before the world as like the, the synopsis of the book? Mark Dever says, We need to make it harder to join, and we need to be better at excluding people. Therefore, don't read Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Um, taken in context, I think what he says is spot on, even though this particular quote would not um, fare very well on the front page of the New York Times or something. And By the way, I, I do get really frustrated when people do this, when they take words that are spoken in a rather intense way and then rip them from context and then twist them uh, to try to make them mean something Uh, that they were not intended to mean. We do obviously need to carefully state the qualifications for membership. When Dever says we need to make it harder to join the church, he does not mean that we need to add, uh, we need to add qualifications for joining the church to the ones that are clearly stated in Scripture. That would be a very bad thing to do. And the rest of his book clarifies that this is not what he means. Who should be permitted to join the church? You know, do, do we need to insist upon them being able to give a certain amount of money every month? We need to make it harder for them to join, therefore let's raise the bar in this regard. Do we need to insist that they have mastered Christian doctrine? You know, let's raise the bar, let's make it harder to join the church. Is that what he means? Certainly not. Who should be received into the congregation? The very short answer to that question is, Christians should be received. <laughs> Christians should be received. Those who have made a credible profession of faith. Those who have been baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who are showing by their way of life that they are Christians so that they're not contradicting their profession of faith with immoral and unrepentant living. Who should be received into the membership of the local church? Christians should, stated negatively, not the world. And Dever is right to say 
that we need to make it harder to join. And what he means is that we have a problem in the modern church where the doors are thrown wide open, so much so to the extent that the world is in fact invited in. People who have not made a credible profession of faith, people who are contradicting their profession if they have made one by their immoral and unrepentant way of life. That's, that's a major problem that is facing um, the church. I tried to find this quote from one of our particular Baptist forefathers, but he, he talked about how if we are careless in guarding the doors of the church, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, our, our numbers will increase rapidly, but our joy will certainly not. That's my paraphrase of whoever said that. I, I, I couldn't even remember who said it, but I remember reading it, thinking it, that, that is such a good observation. If we fail to keep the gates of the church or the doors of the church and to guard them appropriately and biblically, uh, if we fail to guard the entrance of the church, our numbers will increase very rapidly, but our joy will not. We will be grieved very quickly as sin begins to have a negative impact upon the congregation. That is what Dever is getting at here. Our standards for membership in the church must be the Bible standards. Nothing less and, and nothing more. Uh, to err on one side or the other of this is going to be very detrimental to the church and to the lives of Christians who seek to join the church. Nothing less, nothing more. I think our Constitution... Uh, states the matter just right in its section on membership. I think our standards are just what they should be. Christians should be received into this congregation. Those who have made a credible profession of faith have been baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are living a Christian life, not perfection, uh, but a life marked by repentance and continued faith in Christ. And then we do also add this, and I think this is right, that those who join are aware of and in general agreement with the doctrines of the church and are willing to humbly submit themselves to the loving care of the elders. Another way to say that is that these professing Christians will not come into this congregation and stir up division. They will not stir up doctrinal division if there are any differences of opinion regarding uh, what we ought to believe doctrinally. Okay, Biblical church discipline should first appear in the way we take in members. That's a great observation that Dever makes. Biblical church discipline should first appear in the way we take in members. What, what does he mean by that? Does anyone want to answer? I've been talking a lot. What does Dever mean when he says biblical church discipline should first appear in the way we take in new members? Tom. So there's, a, there, there's a ter- an attempt to discern and to answer the question, is there a credible profession of faith? Yes. That's it. Does this mean that we're to be harsh with new people and say, hey, you know, <laughs> tell me about your sin and I'm going to confront it? Of course not. It's, it's more of a formative, natural kind of church discipline that help, helps, uh, happens here. It's pastors coming alongside new people and saying, tell me about your faith. When did you come to faith? What do you understand the gospel to be? How is it with your life? Um, and so there needs to be this... Uh, Confidence that the person is a brother or sister in Christ. Really, that is what church membership is all about. That is what the administration of baptism and the ongoing administration of the Lord's Supper is about. It's whether or not we as a congregation can vouch for this person being a brother or sister in Christ. If we are confident that we are, that they are a brother or sister in Christ, they are to be welcome to the waters of baptism and to the Lord's table in the context of 
the local church. If that confidence is lost because of unrepentant sin or because of heinous sin, whatever it may be, then it may be that they must be barred from the Lord's table. It's all about the gospel. It's all about credible profession of faith. Is their profession of faith credible and believable by the congregation? We must have a clear distinction in our minds between the church and the world. So, when we're examining new members, we have to consider whether those who are under consideration are living Christ-honoring lives, and the seriousness of the commitment we are making to them and they to us must also be communicated. The church covenant that is signed and then read and reviewed periodically here at Emmaus plays a very important role in that, doesn't it? Here it is in writing. Here is the commitments that we are making to one another in the body of Christ. Um, the seriousness of the commitment we are making to, to them and they to us is clearly communicated in that church covenant. What does the Bible say about church discipline? We will not take the time to go and read all of these passages. I do have plans to move through these passages with you at a later time uh, w- with some care. Here is really the main thing I want you to see for now. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is not the only text in the New Testament that speaks about church discipline. It, that's very important for you to see, and I think this is one of the ways in which we need to grow in our understanding of church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is not the only text that we are to go to for guidance in how to do church discipline. Matthew 18 is crucial. It establishes some very important principles. It is often to be followed, but it is dealing with a a particular kind of problem within the church, namely the problem of personal offense. When one brother or sister sins against another, this is how it is to be handled. But there might arise other circumstances in the congregation. Other sins might be committed that require us to handle things a bit differently and do not require us to go through the methodical steps of first, go to him alone. Second, take two or three others with you. If he does not listen, tell it to the church and then let him be to you as a tax collector and sinner if he does not uh, respond. There are other passages that we must consider. Uh, Dever starts by going to Hebrews 12, 1-14. through 14, And that is a very beautiful passage which simply teaches us that God disciplines those He loves. What a great starting point. We're talking about discipline. Do not forget that God disciplines us because He loves us. And one of the ways that He disciplines us is through the church, through the body of Christ of which we are members, right? Uh, God loves us, therefore He disciplines us. This also sets the tone for us, doesn't it? All of our discipline, uh, be it formative or formal, is to be done in what? Love. With the love of God. With love for one another. Matthew 18, 15-17 does clearly demonstrate uh, how we are to respond when others sin against us. If someone sins against you, if they offend you, if they sin against you, what should you do? Should you ignore it? Should you bury it? Should you avoid the confrontation? No, uh, that's dysfunctional. You should, in fact, go to them and say, I think you've sinned against me, and 
I don't want there to be any division within the body of Christ. I don't want there to be any division between you and me. Can we talk about this? It's to be done in love. It's to be done gently. It's to be done for the purpose of restoration and reconciliation. Go to them. And if it is truly sin, I'm not just talking about, hey, you rub me the wrong way, right? But I'm talking about sin. If it is sin and there is no repentance, you're to take someone else with you to function as a witness, one or two others. And if they will not repent of the sin, again I say, if it is truly sin and others agree, then it is to be told to the church. And implied in this is the involvement of the elders at this point. The matter is to be told to the church under the leadership and oversight of the elders of the church so that the process might be done decently and in order. Uh, Elders do have a role to play in this, uh, though church discipline can be done in this formative sense by the members of the congregation alone without any involvement of the elders I will say this at this point, in fact. This formative kind of discipline, and maybe we can talk about it being steps 1 and 2 in Matthew 18, must be done without the elders. Don't involve the elders until you have done your part as a member of the body of Christ. Somebody offends you. Somebody sins against you. Do not run to the elders of the church and tell them, go to the person and try to work it out. Lord willing, the elders will never hear about it. Don't go to others within the congregation at first. Go to the person and confront them about the sin or the offense and try to work it out. And if they will not hear you, if it was a sin that they committed, then take one or two others. Notice the elders do not need to be involved in this. Given It may be that one or two elders are involved at this point. It might need to be that if the sin is severe. But it could be that other members go with you to help work the situation out. But the elders as elders should not be involved in this process until there is no success at attempting reconciliation without them. And certainly the matter would need to be told to the church if there is no repentance under their leadership and oversight. Matthew 18 is a very important passage. It establishes that this is what is to be done in the case of private or personal offense. It also establishes that whenever church discipline is done, it is to be done in a very orderly and careful way. It's a kind of judicial process, you see. So just as there is to be order and care taken in judicial processes in the civil realm, so too within the church. We're not to rush to conclusions. We're not to be harsh. We're not to be unreasonable. We're to be careful. We're to seek restoration and reconciliation all along the way. Everything is to be done decently and in order with love, aiming at reconciliation. Matthew 18 establishes all of that. Now, 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6 also deals with uh, the issue of church discipline. And here we learn about how to deal with someone living an unrepentant, immoral lifestyle. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, Paul pronounces judgment from a distance on someone who was uh, living in a very immoral way. A man had his father's wife. You remember that situation? The kind of thing that would even make the non-believing world blush. They would even consider it to be sinful, even if they did not use the term sin. Inappropriate, wrong, you know, a perversion. Um, And Paul commands that this person simply be removed from the congregation and barred from the Lord's table. It's as if, given the severity of the sin... And I think more importantly, given the attitude of the one sinning, let me come back to that, things go directly to the third step of Matthew chapter 18. A man has his father's wife. 
and it's widely known within the midst of the congregation, and the man is boasting about it, that's revealed in the text, and others are kind of boasting about it too within the church, there is no need to go to him one-on-one. Brother, let's talk about the sin, and then to take two or three others with you. Uh, Brother, let's talk about this sin. That man is to be barred from the Lord's table immediately. Given the severity of the sin, given how this sin is widely known amongst the congregation, everybody knows about it, given his unrepentant attitude, he's boasting, others are boasting to bar him from the Lord's table. Paul pronounces judgment upon him from a distance and commands that the church do this. Do not eat with him, bar him, remove him, let him be to you as a tax collector sinner, or to use other language, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Are are you following with me? So, there are some sins that are of such a nature that they require immediate action within the congregation. This isn't a personal offense, you know, one member sins against another. This is heinous sin. This is unrepentant sin. This is public sin. It's to be dealt with immediately. Galatians 6.1 speaks to how this confrontation is to be done. All confrontation, even of heinous sin, is to be done gently and with the aim being to restore the one who is caught in sin. That is even the case when someone is excommunicated. When someone is excommunicated, what is our prayer? What is our hope even still? Except that that person would repent Hand them over to Satan, Paul says. That's strong language. For the what? Destruction of the flesh so that their soul or spirit might be saved. Notice this. Even the act of excommunication is that we're we're saying, "Because because you have denied your profession of faith by your by your immoral and unrepentant way of life, we are putting you out into the world, into Satan's realm, into Satan's domain, because you have proven that you are not a Christian, even though you once claimed to be. Um, But our desire, our prayer, our hope is that you would be humbled there and brought to your senses and return to the salvation of your soul, either proving that you have always been a believer but you fell into sin or that you are truly saved, uh, given this authentic repentance that you are then demonstrating. Galatians 6.1 is very important. It speaks to the spirit in which this is to be done gently and for the purpose of restoration. 2 Thessalonians 3.6-15 does speak to those who are idle within the congregation and those who are disorderly, though perhaps not guilty of heinous sin. Uh, they are to be marked They are to be not associated with, yet regarded as a brother, not an enemy. It's kind of an interesting passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. I want to read this one. Um, Are you getting the point, though, that I really want you to get that Matthew 18 is not the only passage uh, that speaks to the issue of church discipline. There are other passages that speak to how other circumstances besides personal offense are to be handled within the congregation. I hope you are. Second Thessalonians 3.6 Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when you were when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Um, on and on he goes here talking about how the church is to follow their example in being hardworking and not being idle. Um, for we hear, verse 11, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's a really interesting passage that we would need to take the time to carefully handle some other time. But it's, it's interesting. He's speaking about people who are idle, who are disorderly. They're not living in heinous sin. They're immature in some ways. At the end of this passage, Paul says that um, we are to take note of that person, we're to note them, we're to mark them off as idle or disorderly, we're to mark them off as such, we're to have nothing to do with him so that he may be ashamed. I think that means that they're to be put out of the fellowship and barred from the Lord's table, perhaps. But then Paul says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So I think it's a very particular situation that Paul is here addressing. It's not someone who has completely discredited their profession of faith by living in immoral sin, but there's an immaturity, there's an idleness, there's a disorderliness that needs to be marked off and noted. But the little phrase, do not regard him as an enemy, warn him as a brother, is very interesting, isn't it? Um, it's not quite the same thing that these other passages deal with when someone is to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, etc. So we need to take even passages like this into consideration as we are assessing problems and sins within the congregation. First Timothy one twenty does speak of those who have made shipwreck of their faith. Uh, so they have made shipwreck of their faith either through immoral living and unrepentant lifestyle or through um, believing or teaching heresies. They're to be handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, Paul says. 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 speaks of the issue of church leaders caught in sin who are accused by two or three witnesses. They're to be publicly rebuked here. And I think this is a very important passage here. I think some assume that pastors should get a pass as it pertains to church discipline. Well, he's our pastor. Yes, he fell into sin, um, but he's our pastor. And think of how much damage would come to the congregation if we made that sin known. Uh, let's hide it. Uh, we'll receive his resignation and let him go. But let's not rebuke our pastor. What do the scriptures say? He's to rebuked, be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is a big problem within the church. It's a really big problem in particular denominations where pastors are just kind of let to go from one congregation to the next and then they bring their sin with them from one congregation to the next. It's a failure to do what 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 Commands. Last week I stumbled across the website of some presbytery that had a public notice posted at the top of their website 
warning the church and the world of Reverend so-and-so who had, I think he was from South America somewhere. This man had abandoned his wife, was abusive to her, and was chasing after another gal. Let the world know this man is dangerous. You know, he had fled that region, maybe even into the United States. Public notice being made. I mean, that's rare, right, for something to be posted that publicly. But I thought to myself, this is important because there's a major problem in some of these denominations where nothing is said about pastors who have proven themselves to be abusive or or sinful in some way. And they go from congregation to congregation spreading their sin and abusing others. Uh, We know that there's been a real problem with even um, sexual abuse within churches and some denominations. And um, it, it needs to be dealt with. The point is this, the sin and especially the unrepentant sin of pastors is not to be buried because they are pastors. To the contrary, public rebuke is in order for the good of the man, for the protection of the church, and for the glory of God. Um, Maybe another note of clarification on this. And I am moving very quickly and I'm speaking about all of these things in very general or generic terms. So please hear me. I I hope to come back to this whole topic of church discipline in the not too distant future. Pastors may sin in ordinary ways and should have the opportunity to repent of those sins, um, kind of in the Matthew 18 sort of style too, mind you. I'm not saying that every time a pastor sins he's to be publicly rebuked, certainly not. Uh, Pastors are human too, as you know. And if you're offended by your pastor, you should come to him in that Matthew 18 style and give him an opportunity Uh, to say, I'm sorry I've offended you, or to clarify whatever the problem was, or to repent of an actual sin before you in that Matthew 18 style. Uh, Of course, what I'm referring to here is the the heinous and public sin of pastors should not be buried. It should not be ignored, but needs to be handled according to the uh, teaching of 1 Timothy 5, 19-20. Titus 3, 9-11 speaks about the divisive person. She's to be warned once, twice, and then put out, is what the text says. So this is the person who's just stirring up trouble in the congregation and bringing division to the congregation and will not, and will not heed the warning of the elders of the church to cease with the divisiveness. Titus 3, 9-11 through speaks to this issue. So here's conclusion. Um, I intend to lead you through a more detailed study on church discipline soon so that you might better understand the complexity the decision-making process of your elders, and be better equipped to participate in discipline yourselves. Um, all three of those things are important. You need to be mindful of the complexity uh, that, that often accompanies cases of discipline. You need to understand how your elders think, uh, the decision-making process of your elders, and you need to be better equipped to participate in discipline yourselves. After all, Matthew 18 says, tell it to the church Yes, the elders must lead in formal, in public discipline, but the church must be involved. The church must be involved in this process according to the Scriptures. As you know, according to our Constitution, there are two main things and one other thing that the members are asked to vote upon, the reception and removal of, uh, the appointment and removal of church officers, elders and deacons, the reception and removal of members, Uh, So that's what we're talking about here, church discipline, the end of it being the removal of a member. And then also, um, according to the light of nature and for the sake of prudence, we ask the members to vote on uh, the budget each year, that it be approved after a budget report of the previous year is given. I do not think that is mandated by the Scriptures, but is something that we think is wise. 
The other two things that I just mentioned I think are mandated by the Scriptures, and Matthew 18 um, is very clear about that. Tell it to the church, uh, the text says. Uh, it doesn't say, tell it to the elders. It doesn't say, tell it to the presbytery. I can't say that word. Somebody say it for me. Presbytery. <laughs> that is weird when that happens. When a, You say a word wrong and then it like sticks. I, I don't like that. Um, thank you. It, it doesn't say that. It says, tell it to the, tell it to the church. Okay. Uh, Matthew 18 is not the only text about discipline. I got ahead of myself earlier, and so I will not uh, say again what I've said before. Uh, there are other very important passages that need to be taken into consideration. And then I do want to look at our Constitution, especially Articles 4 and 5. Um, really, I only have Article 5 here printed out. I want you to notice our Constitution is not overly detailed. It lays out the biblical principles, that, but leaves room for each situation to be handled with wisdom. Okay, uh, Take note of that. Section 1, the aim of discipline following the biblical injunctions, this church will seek to faithfully practice church discipline. Church discipline aims, here is its objective, for the glory of God, the welfare and purity of the church, and the restoration and spiritual growth of the offender. It's a good introductory statement to our section on church discipline. Section 2, discipline according to the Scriptures. In cases of actual or presumed private offenses between members, including church officers, it is required that the rule prescribed in, by Christ in Matthew 18, 15-17 be faithfully observed. So, again I say, in cases of actual or presumed private offenses between members, including officers, this is what is to be followed, Matthew 18, 15-17. In cases of persons holding false doctrine, or who openly persist in ungodliness, 1 John 2.15-17, Romans 12.1-2, 2 Corinthians 6.14-7.1, or who live in violation of the law or public morals, or who walk disorderly, or who persist in disturbing the unity and peace of this church, it is the duty of the church to exercise discipline according to the Scriptures. Now look at the texts that are listed here. These are some of the texts that we've considered uh, through the help of the Nine Marks book just now. What do you notice about section 2? Uh, Matthew 18 is put up in the front. Uh, here's kind of the standard text for dealing with church discipline, but it has a particular um, situation in view, uh, actual or presumed private offenses between members, including church officers. But there are other texts listed uh, that speak to the other situations that sometimes arise within a congregation. The Scriptures are to be followed in each case. Section 3, Formative Church Discipline. Formative church discipline is the church engaging in edifying and disciplining itself in love. It is the responsibility of each member to endeavor to maintain this Christian duty of mutual edification for one another. This is done by the use of and submission to the gifts of those both old and young, office bearer and member, which Christ graciously gives to His church. So there is formative church discipline. Section 4, Public Censure. Public censure, which is public admonition, reproof, or rebuke of a sinning member, is to inform the congregation that the erring member is living contrary to the Scriptures in word and or deed. Censure is determined by the severity and openness of the sin and shall be administered by the elders. A number of texts are listed there. This may result in the loss of the privilege of the Lord's Supper, involvement in church business meetings, and other sanctions as judged appropriate by the congregation and or elders. Upon evidence of genuine repentance, the member shall be publicly restored to full privileges of membership. So, public censure is public rebuke. Section 5, excommunication. 
If public censure and the above-mentioned aspects of corrective discipline fail, the congregation shall have a right to excommunicate from membership such persons by an affirmative vote of the majority of the members present and voting. And then six, restoration. Uh, remember, this is always our aim whenever we are doing church discipline, be it formative or formal. Uh, restoration is the aim. Persons who have been excommunicated from membership may be restored to membership after satisfactory evidence has been given of genuine repentance. The aim of discipline having been accomplished, the congregation shall have a right to restore the penitent person to full membership by an affirmative vote of the majority of the members present and voting. Here's a wonderful statement about church discipline in our Constitution. Again, I say um, that there, there's guidelines here that are, I think, thoroughly biblical. But notice it's not a book of church order uh, that tries to outline what exactly the process will look like in every situation. And I think that is good. That is wise because these matters are complex. They require wisdom and sensitivity. I do hope, um, and I haven't figured out how exactly to do this yet, but I would like to take you through this little book that I just read this last week. On Monday I read it. I've been reading books on church discipline quite a bit over the last couple of years. Books that are very old, books that are newer. And then I finally read this one on Monday, and I thought, this one is outstanding. It's really good. It's a nine marks book written by Jonathan Lehman, Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus. And I'll just tell you, one of the things I appreciated most about this book is that it did emphasize the need for wisdom and sensitivity to each and every circumstance that uh, we, are, we, we are faced with within the congregation. Uh, he makes the point that having a list of sins that warrant public rebuke or excommunication is really not the best approach because it may be that if a brand new believer commits a certain kind of sin that it's handled in a different way than if someone who is 30 years old in the Lord commits the same sin, for example. You understand how those are two different circumstances? Uh, the, the one might have been more of a sin of passion, you know, because of immaturity. The other might have been a more high-handed sin. There's so many factors that come into play that need to be taken into consideration when we deal with sins within the congregation. Uh, so the Scriptures provide us with clear guidelines that must always be followed, but elders and members of the church also must be wise to handle each case according um, to, to wisdom and, and, and prudence. We must be very wise and ask the Lord's help in these things so that the church is built up in love ultimately. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which guides us uh, into the faith and, and guides us also in the faith, not only individually, uh, but as a congregation as well. Again, I do pray that you would give us the strength to understand these things and the courage to live according to them. Help us to walk with you individually. In obedience to your word, help us to walk with you corporately also in obedience to your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.